Welcome to Driven Minds. I'm Gigi, and this is a Type 7 podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Dr. Marielle is a holistic psychologist and intergenerational trauma expert. She also has a podcast in which she explores healing intergenerational trauma called Break the Cycle, which is also the title of her upcoming book. So Dr. Marielle does this series of 10 to 50 second videos, which she posts across her socials called Tea Therapy Sessions. And they're full of these really practical insights and immediate takeaways. The one she did about codependency gave me immediate clarity. So highly recommend checking that out. Anyway, I wanted to have her on the podcast for a longer tea sesh, and she generously gave us some time. So here it is, my conversation with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. I don't think I've ever seen you virtually without tea. Tea is always around me. It is never not around me. Like, I am a heavy tea drinker. I'll have the teas that feel appropriate to the time of day. So what are you drinking right now? Just out of curiosity, what's your poison? My poison? A typical go-to, red rooibos. And um, got a little bit of uh, lavender honey in there, too. It's a fancy sweetener, lavender honey. I know. (laughs) I can't get enough of it now. I feel like I've been introduced to a whole new world after that. I also have an apple cider honey, which is divine and very appropriate to the times. Um, So, (laughs) How about you? What are you sipping on? Well, first of all, I don't do the stray tea leaves like you do. I am in total admiration, A, of your apparatus through which the tea (laughs) is created. That clear thing is unbelievable. Mine come in these these cute little... Mm -hmm bags where it's not totally ground up. It's a little alive. But I just went for the tea that had the highest caffeine content, to be honest. Yeah. In the mornings, it's always black tea. Always. And at night, it's like whatever is non-caff. So first and foremost, in your words, how would you describe what you do? Goodness. My words because it is a lot. Uh, I would say that a lot of what I do is healing work. So I see myself as a healer and I know that the position that I take on as a healer is that of psychologist and more specifically a holistic psychologist, which means that I integrate a lot of different healing practices that you wouldn't see in traditional therapy. But for the most part, if I were to like really contextualize it in just a few words, I am a healer of people's minds. Your focus is in trauma. Yes. Trauma has fascinated me ever since the moment a therapist told me that I was traumatized a few Mm. years ago. And I remember just sitting on the couch wondering how I was the last to know about my own trauma, which made me realize how multi-layered and complex it is. So I'm curious to hear what first sparked your interest in trauma. Mm. Well, I love that question. You know, I think it it came from a lot of places, right? So most definitely it came from me having seen that trauma was just present in every single session that I had with every person. Mm. So I just kept seeing the same narrative, the same story. It felt like just a different person, a different life, but the same story over and over again. And as a therapist, people kind of just you know, they they see the other side. They come to therapy. They're there for 45 minutes. They leave therapy. And that's the extent of how they see therapy in the therapy world. Us therapists, we're sitting there for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And we're seeing person after person after person after person for 45 minutes, sometimes without many breaks. 
And after a certain amount of time, you're seeing and hearing the very same things. And you're like, there's a common thread here. There's a theme. Something's happening. And what is that common thread? A lot of the same stories that started to pique my interest were stories around people having the very same trauma-based experiences that their parents had. I remember when I was still in my training years, and I remember the clinicians in the room when we had clinical team meetings saying, that's complex trauma. And I was like, okay, like I'm learning the language, complex trauma, okay, I'm hearing it. But I'm like, but it's more than that because it's happening before this person is even born. Mm. There's more. We need to know more so that we can actually get to the root of the issue. What is an example of that same kind of experience that you would see carried over from a parent to their child? I would see a lot of violence in the home. And when I mean violence in the home, like domestic disputes being really, really prominent from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. People learn how to be in relationships from the relationships that they witness when they're young. So if those relationships were turbulent and chaotic, then that's the very same kind of relationship pattern that they're going to now carry over into their lives. Is that what you'd call intergenerational trauma? Well, intergenerational trauma is the type of trauma that's handed down. It's the only kind of emotional trauma that has that qualifier, parent to child. And typically, what we tend to see is that there are two distinct experiences that then when they come together, they create the intergenerational trauma. The experiences are biological, which means that there's a genetic component, which means that there's Mm -hmm. a traumatized parent that lived in chronic stress. Their genes registered that they were in a traumatized body. And when they Mm -hmm. then procreated, their genes transferred over to their child as a stress body to a stress body. So basically their child was born with an emotional vulnerability to stress. That's basically what we call it. Then there's the psychological side, and that side is everything that happens after that child is born. They're born into a chaotic home where there's a lot of yelling. They're traumatized by that. There's a divorce. They're traumatized by that. They go into the school system. They're bullied. More trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so it keeps on going. And now they themselves are in their own trauma responses, the ones that they saw modeled in the home and the ones that they just initiated by way of how many traumas they've experienced and how much they've had to be in survival mode. When we're talking about intergenerational trauma, we're talking about those two experiences, the genetics, and we're talking about all the psychology and all the stuff that happens after a person's born. Do we have any evidence or proof via scans or any sort of scientific research that trauma is actually transferred and passed down through genetic material? Such a good question. We have some studies, like any other kind of mental health condition or any trauma or any anything. Typically, we start off with some studies that are non-human. They start with mice, then they migrate from mice to other animals. And then they, when it becomes ethical enough to study a human mm-hmm. for that same condition, then we study humans. However, of course, we started a lot of the genetic studies in the area of like, how are these animals that have very similar brains and very similar nervous systems to that of humans, how are they experiencing trauma from one generation to the next? Then came in a lot of the work by Dr. Rachel Yehuda over, um, I believe she's in one of the hospital systems in New York as a researcher. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Yehuda was the initial researcher that started off the point of inquiry around 
humans that actually are descendants of experiences that were terrorizing or traumatic, and that happened to be the children of Holocaust survivors. And what Dr. Yehuda found, among many things, is that temperamentally, there were a lot of similarities that were being handed down, that people were having similar emotional processes, and that individuals that were of Jewish descent that were not children of Holocaust survivors that came from other parts of the world, that they did not have the same experiences, emotional experiences. So we have what we call our control group, which were the non-descendants and the individuals that were the subjects. And so that's when our initial understandings came from. And then we have a couple of different researchers across the world that are now in the process or have already published several pieces of work around different types of populations apart from the Jewish population. Anybody that has been a part of a a targeted population or a part of a population that has undergone a significant amount of trauma. You've devoted your life to healing others. Can you tell us about the path that led you there? You know, the path is actually one that, of course, like any other path, I think, definitely had like some winding roads. It wasn't a straight path. And Mm -hmm. I'm actually okay with that. Like, I actually, I love the fact that I got a little bit of life steam (laughs) behind this decision to be a psychologist. But I actually uh, used to be in advertising. I used to be an ad exec. Oh, where? Kind of everywhere, really, all over New York. I felt like I was living like the madman life. Right. Yeah, I was like at the Weather Channel doing ad executive, you know, functions and just a number of different places. And then what happened at that moment in time was that I started volunteering because I didn't really feel very fulfilled in my job at all. And I volunteered like in my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, and I would come home and volunteer. And then on the weekends, I would spend most of my weekends volunteering. I was up 30 hours a week with 80-hour work weeks volunteering. So my weeks were really heavy. Why'd you start volunteering? Well, it was mostly because I just felt like I want to do something that feels more fulfilling and that feels like I'm giving something back because advertising is very much about just feeding the capitalistic machine. And it didn't feel like it fed my soul at all. I've always been a very like intuitive, very soulful person. I was like that as a kid. As a kid, I always wanted to soothe everyone's emotions and help them feel better. And I just never found my path. I don't think anyone in my family or in my educational sphere really knew to to guide me down psychology, down that path. So eventually I just found my way there by volunteering and I also did a little bit of therapy around that time. And the therapist, my first therapist ever said, I think you should be a therapist. I think it was like session two. And I was like, I'm here for me. (laughs) And they were like, no, really, you need to go for this. Listen, therapists need therapists. Oh, yeah. I actually am also a professor. And the students that I teach are master's and doctoral levels, therapists to be. And I strongly recommend, the program itself also strongly recommends that everybody that is seeing someone in a therapeutic way, that they themselves mm-hmm. seek out therapy. And it's at Columbia, right? It's at Columbia, yeah. yeah. That's where I went to school, where I got my doctorate, and also mm-hmm. where I've been fortunate to have a professorship position that I kind of dip, dip and dive in and out of, depending on my capacity. But in that role, I recommend that therapists see therapists because, one... 
the humility that comes from sitting in the client's role is something that can't be taught. Mm. I need for my students to know if you are asking for someone to enter this deep vulnerability, you have to know how to do it yourself. Right. And then also, you know, it's just really healthy. I also, by the way, want to be a therapist eventually. Amazing. So many questions for you. But the main one is how you don't take on the trauma, the feelings, the emotions, and the experiences of your patients. Because I can't even watch scary movies. Seriously. Like a child. I cannot watch scary movies. The ring still lives in my head. And I think that was the last scary movie I watched. And that was like 2000. 12 or something, 11, you know? So I. Same. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. That was the last scary movie that I watched, probably around the same time. Talk about synchronicity. And I never again. I closed my eyes like half the movie. Same. And I was like trying to close my eyes and my ears. I just didn't want the stimuli. And yeah, never again. I'm not a scary movie person. So, how are you able to differentiate between yourself and the experiences of your client, especially dealing and working in the field of trauma, which is mm-hmm. the most heavy area, I would think, of therapy? A good therapist is trained on how to create an emotional boundary between their lives and the lives mm-hmm. of the people that they serve. So, it happens to be a lot easier than what one might think. I think what gets in the way typically is when people are actually burned out. When people are overextending and they're taking on too many clients in one day or in a week, Mm. and they're not able to really create enough of a boundary for themselves, and then they start, everything starts becoming like one. However, in the process of training, most therapists do have that experience. I have that experience. I treated individuals that were of my same identities and came from the same place in the Dominican Republic that I came from. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in front of these people and I'm like, but I have to help them. They have to be completely healed because that's like my cousin, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? And it's like Mm -hmm. this incredible, incredible weight on my shoulders. Like they must heal because if not, then I failed myself and I failed them. It almost felt like they were me. And I was fortunate enough to have amazing supervisors that were able to really differentiate my life from theirs and make that healthy separation, which then when I transitioned into being a clinician, I was able to do almost automatically. And so there is training around that. I think that most people have that concern. I've heard that very often, but there's a lot of training. And literally from the moment that you step into a therapeutic space, you're trained on how to actually create and establish and maintain those boundaries. I'm wondering if the separation you've been able to create between your clients and yourself in these moments of talk therapy and trauma, if you are able to create other boundaries Like if you're in a fight with a lover or a friend, are you able to shelf that better because you can do that with your patients? Because I'm like, I want to learn that then. (laughs) (laughs) Much better. I mean, we're still human, right? But much better. And also even, you know, anything that you see around you that's happening, whether it's to you or with you, with a significant other, or if it's just other people, sometimes I'm able to say, you know what? 
I can see that that's their stuff and that that's something that they still need to reconcile and work on mm-hmm. rather than internalizing it for myself and like they're being mean to me. They're not showing up as a person that I need them to show up as, but I can see the multiple dimensions of how a person needs to heal. And that allows me to enter into a point of compassion for that person that can build that connection even further. And so that's the added benefit the healthy consequence of being able to be trained this way that you then can see people as these multidimensional beings and it can actually take you away from having a destructive types of behaviors towards the people that you love, but instead take steps back that can really build connections with them. I want to go back to your youth because you mentioned you were from the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And I read that you moved when you were around five years old. Yes. Did your whole family move together, or can you tell us about that experience? No, actually, that's um, I didn't get to it before because I got in a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> my, my migration history is actually a part of my trauma. So my family actually moved just as myself, my mother, and my sister. I came when I was five. My father came when I was 21. Wow. And so I basically lived the entirety of my youth without my dad. And when my father came back, he was really trying to make up for those years. And we were trying to fit back into a family unit. However, all of those moments, all of those years without him being present and without him being able to also financially provide for us because that was, Mm -hmm. you know, also something that kept us in deeper poverty than what we could have been. Mm -hmm. All of that contributed to a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And so a lot of my experiences in life that also I think made me maybe a little bit more emotionally sensitive had to do with this ongoing longing for this parent that we would talk to that was in a relationship with my mother, but that we couldn't touch and we couldn't see. Mm. And it's a really unique experience to have the types of wounds that come from a parent that really actually loves you, but can't provide you with that connection that you desire as a kid that needs to feel the actual presence of a parent. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it was really complex, a complex migration history and a complex emotional experience as a result also. If you don't mind me asking, how did you start your journey in healing the wounds that came from the absence of a father? Those wounds, because they were layered with the systems that kept my father away from me. What systems were those exactly? Well, I mean, the U.S. system and how, you know, it orients itself around people that migrate from Latinx countries, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that uh, Latinx countries are highly demonized and, you know, there's a a way in which uh, the immigration processes tend to be stricter for us. The ways that we're treated in immigration offices are pretty traumatic. It's saddening, Right. right? And so I think all of that also made it so that I had to heal not just from a parent that wasn't physically present, but I had to also do the healing around the systems that kept my father away, which was where a lot of my resentment was held. Mm. It was in the systems and it was in seeing how these systems disrupted families in such a profound way. So a lot of what I did for my healing was advocacy work. A lot of the initial moments in my 
professional trajectory had to do with doing advocacy around these inhumane practices that, you know, destroy families and also doing the healing work to reconcile with the fact that I desired a a parent to be there and just couldn't have it. There was a lot of grief that had to happen Mm -hmm. because there's a grief for the childhood that I desired and wish I had, but I could not have. A childhood where Mm -hmm. both parents were present in a loving home. Instead, I had a loving home that was broken out into two different countries. Right. So, yeah. So the healing had to do with understanding love was present, holding on to that, but also grieving what I wish could have been. Do you find most of your patients seek you out with similar backgrounds and traumas to yours? To put it into context, the place where I got my initial clinical training was Columbia University Medical Center. And Columbia University Medical Center is situated at the heart of Washington Heights in New York in Manhattan. Washington Heights is a predominantly Latinx and Black community. Mm -hmm. So the people that come into that clinic are primarily of that demographic. So there was already... Fate. Yeah. The people that I was working with, you know, the community I worked with were a community that had very similar stories to my own. Right. So that already was baked into the work for many years. And then when I transitioned out of the hospital system, I did have a lot of individuals that came to me and there was almost like, a, even if we didn't cover immigration, there was an unsaid that you get my story. Okay, let's table that. And let me tell you about this boyfriend that I have that's driving me bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. In order to get a psychology degree, did you have to study neuroscience? Yes. So psychology is the only therapy profession, right? kind of apart from a psychiatrist who has a a profound background in brain health as well. Mm -hmm. But psychology at the doctorate level requires that you do a full year of extensive neuroscience work, which is why we know so much about the brain and the nervous system. Neuroscience, or the very little I understand about it, is so fascinating to me as it relates to mental health. Mm -hmm. What is the most surprising finding that you came across in your research? The most surprising was the fact that our emotions can actually be brought down, especially their intensity could be brought down through nervous system practices. Mm. We learned a lot about the nervous system and the brain at a granular level. So I'm talking about like getting into the neuron and like looking at all the different parts of a neuron. That's so interesting. So you actually saw what emotions look like. Yeah, I mean, we have to see the different areas of the brain and we have to know the different areas of the brain that are implicated in emotions, logical assessments, which is a whole other Mm -hmm. area that we have like two years of extensive training around. We have to understand what areas of the brain are implicated in different kinds of diagnoses. I mean, all of this is a part of what is required for you to have a sound understanding of when a person shows up to your office, what is it that we're working with here? But that also must be so powerful because emotions seem so difficult to handle for many of us, including myself. I get completely wrapped up in them. There are physical manifestations. They overwhelm you. So the idea that Mm -hmm. you've actually seen how emotions affect the brain, did that change your ability to understand yourself in any way and understand the power that A, emotions have over someone, but B, the promise of regulating emotions? 
Yeah, especially that last part, the promise of it and Mm -hmm. helping me to stay the course of the approach that I've taken to this work, the more holistic approach. Mm -hmm. Because even the other day, like I was talking to somebody about holistic practice and they noticed that I kind of shrunk in my seat a bit. And the reason why I shrink whenever I talk about holistic methods is because I still think that it's so unconventional in day-to-day practice and in day-to-day dialogues with anybody, and especially with fellow clinicians, that I almost feel like, oh, like, are they going to accept this? Or am I going to, you know, be looked at as that like woo-woo therapist, you know? Mm -hmm. But because I understand the implications of emotions, not just on the brain, not just on the nervous system, but literally on every cell in our bodies, Mm -hmm. that helps me to really stand solidly on the approach that I take. I briefly mentioned this earlier when I first went to therapy four years ago, and after two sessions, the therapist remarked on how traumatized I was, and I was shocked to hear her say this, I think partly because the word itself carries so much weight, but primarily because it was the last word I would have used to describe my experience Mm. because of the way I conceived of trauma at the time, which was trauma with a capital T, right? Like violence or death, abuse. So my alleged trauma did not align with what I thought of as trauma-worthy, if you will. Mm -hmm. What is your conception or definition of trauma? The way that I see trauma is as something that overwhelms our mind and body to the extent that we are no longer able to cope with the situation, which is why trauma comes out of spectrum, which is why we have big T and little t traumas, because it's about how the person is experiencing the event. We have an entire global crisis that we just went through. In that global crisis, you have people that are still deeply traumatized deeply depressed, unable to self-motivate, highly anxious as a consequence of what happened to us. Then you have other people that are out there in the world almost as if a pandemic didn't even happen. Right. It's an individual process. It's about your own individual capacity and what has tapped you out. And so that's why it's important to understand that a little t trauma or something like you know, a bad breakup, which is like one of the things that fall under little t, can have the very same effect as a natural disaster because it's about the individual as they experience it and to what extent they have the emotional capacity to overthrow the experiences or be overthrown by it. I think what makes little t trauma less obvious is because it can be harder to identify no matter how much therapy you have. And Mm -hmm. it's funny, the timing of our conversation is slightly uncanny because a few days ago I did psychedelic trauma therapy Mm -hmm. for the first time and worked through youth traumas that I had not sublimated. These were just normal childhood memories as far as I was concerned. And for example... One of the traumas that unexpectedly came to mind that I had to work through the other day was an earthquake I experienced in L.A. Mm. I was five years old at the time, and I just never, ever conceived of it as trauma. And 
I work in mental health. I have access to healers. I have an amazing therapist. I have the tools and time to identify and work through my issues. And this did not cross my mind for a nanosecond Mm -hmm. that this earthquake was trauma. And I think part of it was because I experienced it and survived it. No wall or floor collapsed in front of me. So I did completely write off this earthquake as something that just happened, Mm -hmm. that I happened to have remembered in only until I had to face it head on the other day did I realize the full effect it had on my life and my sense of safety and my body and in the world. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we feel so guilty, or at least in my case, reticent to identify a situation or experience as traumatic? Well, I think it's in part because of the empathy that we have for other people, right? Like when we're high on the empathy scale, then we're going to think, well, that person has it a way worse than I do. So, you know, why would I be complaining about anything? But the thing is that we have to be very cautious of that because that can also be a version of how we suppress our needs, what is important for our healing, Right? So when we're not attending to ourselves and allowing ourselves to be seen on the scale of trauma, then what tends to happen is that we're like shrugging it off, like, ah, earthquake, whatever, right? Yeah. And then it doesn't get resolved, right? It's just an earthquake. Nothing happened. Come on. You know, like, and so, and we do that. Like a lot of people do that. The empathizers of the world, especially, you know, for somebody that has a lot of loss, I can lose like something like my favorite pencil. And I'm like, no, my favorite pencil's gone, you know? And I just like, I wanted to hold on to that thing forever. Like pencils aren't meant to last forever, but mm-hmm. losses, experiences, loss. And it can be something as small as that where I'm like, my goodness. So it's really that subjective. Exactly. I mean, everything that is emotion-based is subjective. And even like when we're talking about the physical body, there's a lot of parts about healing that do have a very individualized mm. experience. There's a there's something about it that's also individualized. So we have to think human to human, person to person. That's why as a clinician, when a person comes into my office at 11 a.m. and they tell me their story and we work through things, and the next person comes in at 12, and one has little T trauma and one has big T trauma, I'm not treating any person any lesser than or working with them any less because their trauma is different. Mm. I'm going to work with the person that's in front of me and the way that they have experienced and internalized the experiences that have happened to them. How do we go about identifying and acknowledging trauma so it doesn't take someone three decades to acknowledge something like it took me? (laughs) Well, you know what? Interestingly enough, a conversation like what we're having right now is already a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. We weren't having these conversations or even saying trauma in the ways with so much facility as we are right now. It just wasn't happening. Five years ago even. Yeah, it was not happening. I was on social five years ago and the conversations that I was having were very tentative. I was like, so there's this thing called depression, you know about it? That was a landscape and that was a landscape for a lot of my colleagues because we were, a lot of us were doing similar work just in our own voices. However, now we're like, no, 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 we got to get to work. There's trauma. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. So this conversation is already a move in the right direction. And I'm hoping that it motivates people to actually do more of this, have more Mm -hmm. of these conversations, look into little T and big T traumas and really look at the ACEs scale and think like, okay, you know. What's the ACEs scale? 
the adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. And what they are, are a list of different experiences that tend to create an adverse traumatic reaction in most individuals. However, the scale is a bit limited because it does have only a certain amount of categories, but they're a good starting point, especially for a conversation, especially with a clinician. So the ACE scale, I think it's widely available through Google and it's, it's healthy to just become familiar with what's on there, right? However, I think that if a person really wants to delve into their trauma in the very ways that you did, I think it's the most important and healthy and probably safe to do with a trained clinician, someone who is a mental health clinician trained in that area and licensed, because that means that they're going to be able to have a safe container by which they're able to explore the trauma and be able to unpack it and then land at certain traumas that they didn't even know were there, like earthquakes. When someone starts thinking back, how likely is it that every negative childhood memory is trauma? Well, that's a really good question. And also, like, it's not likely that every childhood memory could be that because we have to think, first of all, children are incredibly resilient, to be frank, maybe even more than us adults. I was such a badass when I was five. Yeah, they're so creative as to how they go about, you know, like healing. They're incredible. We have so much to learn from children when it comes to healing. You know what's so funny is I mm-hmm. keep a photo of my four or five-year-old self as the background to my phone. And oh. whenever I have to decide something or I'm going through a hard time, I literally take out my phone and ask, what do you need right now? Mm-hmm. And it actually does help because that is our most unhindered, uncoded self. So yes. it is. I agree with you. Kids are unbelievable. Yeah. And I think, you know, because of the resilience of children, uh, that's not to say, you know, children don't suffer. They do, and greatly so. And then they become the adults that suffer, right? <laughs> However, every every circumstance isn't one where a child will suffer. I've seen children that have had parents that have passed away, and they've been able to experience that as something that they have to recover from, but did not deeply traumatize them. Wow. Yeah, you know, like they'll they'll have an element of resilience that's baked into their character where, of course, they have a, a longing and a yearning for a parent that was not present, right? But then there are other ways in which they've been able to live life out loud. And then you'll have, you know, uh, an experience where the same child would have, you know, lost a favorite calculator and that could have been something that they've never forgotten and they've had this deep longing. I mean, it's just the mind is so complex People are complex and children are also very complex, yet so resilient. So every single experience that they have isn't going to be registered as traumatic, negative experience especially, as traumatic, nor is it going to be registered as a bad experience. It might just be registered as something that happened and something that they recollect, but they don't feel intense emotionality around it. How might we go about identifying a physical or mental manifestation of trauma so we can get an idea of what unresolved trauma looks like. Trauma is a deep wound, and it typically is one that can unravel people. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to trauma specifically, I always like the idea of unraveling with someone that can help you to unravel in the safest way possible. So that's usually my go-to. I think when it comes to trauma responses or what we call trauma symptoms, those can be as variable as people. A trauma response that one person could have would be to yell, right? while another person will have a trauma response of maybe like driving 
somewhere and like forgetting where they were going. Like something super random. It could be as literally as variable as there are humans. So I can't necessarily say like, these are the things, you know, to say that that are trauma responses. And then people are like, well, well, where do I fall in those categories? But then we miss out on something because their trauma response is so unique. So really the best way to know what your trauma responses are or trauma symptoms are is for you to work with someone for a couple sessions and then they can say, we have it, here it is. And they can point it out to you and mirror it to you and say, how do you want to work with this? But even what you just said is so helpful. I mean, even the example you gave about the yelling Mm -hmm. as a trauma response, while you were talking, I had a moment where I was like, wait, when do I yell? Oh, I yell mostly in romantic fights when I feel I'm not being heard. When did I not feel heard as a child? Oh, right. I never felt hurt as a child. Like, you Mm -hmm. you know, that even just landed for me. Yeah. I want like a list. This is what I want (laughs) from you, please, okay? I want want a list of all of the possible trauma responses. And it's so interesting because you can go through them and say, do I do this? When do I do this? And then why do I do this? Mm -hmm. And kind of work from there. No, for sure. You know, let me help you out with something that I think can be helpful. Although, again, like... We could literally have like 10 podcast episodes on just covering trauma responses because they're really vast. But in the category of trauma, as far as we know it, we have specific subcategories Mm -hmm. that are there that are basically what we know to be like trauma responses. We have emotional or psychological or mood-based responses, which is chronic sadness, it's irritability, which from there stems like a lot of the yelling, right? Short fuse, all of those things. It's feeling some element of anxiety even, right? A lot of these psychological symptoms. There's also metabolic symptoms. And some of those are like poor sleep, having insomnia or waking up in sleep terrors. It's having an appetite that is hyperactive or hypoactive, meaning that it's more than usual or less than usual, like you're just eating everything in sight because you're eating your emotions and that's a trauma response. Or you're like losing 50 pounds in a month because you just cannot get yourself to eating because you don't have the appetite. Metabolically, it's happening like as a hormonal process for you, right? So it's like, it's so vast (laughs) and there's so many others too. So I've had both of those where I've eaten 12 cupcakes in two minutes. And then I've also had the losing 20 pounds over the course of a month. Mm -hmm. How would you start conceiving of the questions I should ask myself in relation to those two symptoms? Well, the questions are going to always be related to the emotional experience and not to the symptom itself, as I see it. We're going to work on the symptoms, But the ways to work on the symptoms is by way of tackling the emotional undercurrent that is keeping those symptoms alive. Meaning what is going through my head, trying to understand the urge that I have when I eat 12 cupcakes in two minutes? Well, it's going to be like if you experience trauma because let's say that you were in a relationship where you were constantly gaslit. Been there. If you were in that relationship and you've been like... You internalize a lot of shame, a lot of self-doubt, right? And those are the ways in which you experience your trauma. Then we have to work on the shame. And we have to work on how you doubt yourself and how you don't believe in yourself anymore Mm. in order to no longer see those parts of your trauma show up. 
I saw your video on codependency and I lost my mind over how helpful it was. I have a tendency of drawing out relationships past the desire end date. And some of my relationships take two or three months to end because I find it hard to let go of someone who has the ability to soothe my emotions, even if I know we're not meant to be together. So I will hold on to that connection for dear life, even though I know eventually I'll have to let it go. In that moment of urgency, when you feel the need to send that text to that person in order to self-soothe, what can we do instead? I'm actually publishing a couple books a couple of books, a couple of videos this week. <laughs> Why well, I'm publishing a book as well, and that book will have some elements of codependency in there for sure. The videos that I'm actually publishing this week have some bits and pieces as to you know what we can do around that, and they're, they'll be on YouTube. But the main thing that we need to start doing in instances like this is to really understand how to tolerate distress when we don't really know how to tolerate our own emotions and we can't sit with our own emotions, then what we do is that we jump to try and get someone to save them for us. When we're able to actually manage our own distress and our own emotions and anything that is coming up in our lives, we don't act like people need to put out the fires in our lives, but we actually know how to do that for ourselves. And the ways that we connect with other people aren't marked by those like many emergencies. I read this study recently that shows that the brain reacts similarly to being in love as it does to a drug addiction. So no wonder why it's so excruciating breaking up with someone because it's kind of like going cold turkey. How do you deal with breakups and what kind of healing modalities have you turned to that you also find the most effective? Well, you know, I think breakups is a grieving process. And so for me, the -hmm. way that I go through breakups is to to really just honor how I feel. I think oftentimes we just want to like, you know, get back on the horse and just like, you know, get into the next thing so that we can avoid the emotion. However, the ways that I cope with breakups from anyone, from a friend, from a romantic partnership, anybody, is really by way of just like honoring the emotion that I'm in and just sitting with it. What drives you? What drives me is my desire to see people heal in this generation. I really hope that people can feel that motivation to do the hard work. And what drives me is my desire to help them get there. That, my friends, was Dr. Marielle Bouquet. You can follow her on Instagram at Bouquet. that's B-U-Q-U-E, and you can follow me at Gillian Sagansky. As always, I want to hear what you think of this episode and every episode. I also want to hear who you want to hear from next. So slide into my DMs and a penny for your thoughts, as my Nana would say. Also, please do not forget to rate the podcast if you have a moment leave a comment, etc. Thank you for being here. Until next time.